0: Heavenly Father, without your Spirit in us, uh, we have no chance uh, of hearing you speak spiritual truths uh, into our minds and souls. And so we beg of you now to open our eyes to remove whatever scales or veil or darkness or blindness that exists uh, in our hearts. We pray for your mercy upon us. We pray that you will shine your light, the light of your word, of the gospel of your glorious Son, uh, that we may see him, listen to him, Love Him, trust Him, and live for Him all the days of our lives. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now sometimes uh, as the sermon begins, you are consciously or subconsciously wondering, should I bother to listen? Right? Especially if you're uh, not quite into this Christian thing, or you've been at church a long time, or you're young, or you're old, pretty much everyone has the same kind of subconscious thought, right? Should I bother listening? Will this be relevant to me today? Well, for today, let me say that this sermon is without a doubt 100%, 100% relevant to you. Because this passage is about listening, right? It's about the very thing you're doing right now, hearing and responding to God's Word. And in this passage, we're going to see that there are four responses that everyone makes, right? Four very normal responses. Some of you will hear and we have absolutely no response. All right? You're here, and you have absolutely no response to everything I say today. Some of you will hear, and you'll respond excitedly, but for a short time. Maybe at morning tea, maybe at lunch, maybe tomorrow you'll go. Right? You'll be excited for a few minutes. You'll, you will share right, fervently during the sharing session afterwards, but then you'll forget about it tomorrow or someday in the future. Now, others of you will hear, and you'll respond, and you'll keep responding for quite some time. But you'll see that your life never actually really bears any fruit. There will be no real difference. Whereas others of us here will will hear and we will respond and we will keep hearing and we'll keep responding and there will be an amazing transformation in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. These are the four normal responses to hearing God's Word. And that's what our passage is saying is happening right now. Right, it's putting the, the spotlight on you. It's, it's, it's meant to confront us or comfort us, depending on how we hear and how we respond. It's meant to confront us. It's meant to make you feel uncomfortable. Or it may actually comfort you and encourage you, because you are bearing fruit in your lives. And, and, and the, um, the weight of what's going on here is that it's how we listen and respond that will determine whether we are insiders of Jesus' kingdom, which he's establishing, or whether we're outsiders, Even though we're in the church this morning, maybe we're actually outsiders of Jesus' kingdom. That is the challenge this morning. Now, last week, in terms of context, we saw Jesus doing amazing things. And towards the end of that passage, we see him being rejected with great hostility, right? The the Jewish leaders, at the end of chapter 3, verse 5, verse 6, sorry, uh, are seeking to destroy him, right? They're seeking to destroy him Um, in the face of overwhelming evidence they will not believe, right? That was the main point isn't it, of last week. It isn't about evidence. In the face of overwhelming evidence, they will not believe. Instead, they will seek to destroy Jesus. So we see at the beginning of our passage in chapter three, verse seven, that Jesus withdraws, right? He separates from them and goes somewhere else. It's not that he's scared. It's not that he's running away. It's just that he's got more important things to do to continue proclaiming the kingdom. And in a way, he's kind of rejecting these Jewish leaders and saying, well, I'm going to wash my feet Uh, my hands off you guys, and I'm going to keep doing what I came to do, which is to proclaim the kingdom and to show my authority uh, to overcome evil in this world. So he continues on his ministry. Um, And we pick it up from verse 7, where we see see a massive crowd, right? In chapter 3, verse 7, a massive crowd is following Jesus, right? From from far and wide they come. These names may not mean much to us, but let me show you a map, okay? Just so you can get some sense of what's going on here. Now, if you get a scale of what, what's going on here, it's about 250 to 150 kilometers, right, from Idumea out there, and then Sidon and Tyre out there, completely non-Jewish regions, and then from beyond the Jordan, which is to the east. So from north, east, south, and west, people are pouring in from hundreds of kilometers away to come and see and hear from Jesus. Now, you've got to understand, right, this is the age without uh, media communications, without social media and news, it really is quite an astonishing thing to see how greatly the hype has built up, right? That people are streaming in from everywhere to see Jesus. Now, sometimes when we read the children's Bibles, we get this picture, right? we is just so wildly inaccurate of what's going on. It's just a calm scene, you know? Sometimes there's a baby on Jesus' lap and a lamb sitting beside him and someone's carrying a lily or something, right? In the field, okay? And it's so it's calm. It's like a Sunday afternoon picnic, right? in the Brisbane sunshine. It's not like that. You read this, uh, it's, it's more like this, okay? This is more the scene, I think, that chapter 3, verse 7 is showing. This is like a casualty war, right? After a natural disaster or a war, it's like an aid truck coming uh, to war-torn parts of Africa. It's that kind of scene, of desperation, right? People in great need who have heard that Jesus could meet those needs. People are desperate to get to Jesus. If we were living then, we would have been desperate too. We would have been dragging our sick parents and and, and siblings and friends and relatives to come and see Jesus. Now the crowds in Mark's Gospel are a very significant character. You don't have to think of a big group as a character, but the crowds are a very significant character in Mark. They're almost always there, aren't they, in the background? Have a look, right? Chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, you see these crowds are there. In chapter 3, verse 20, you see the great crowds are there. In chapter 3, verse 32, the crowds are there. In chapter 4, verse 1, the crowds are there, and we'll see them all the way through Mark. They're a character. Now, what can we say about the crowd? Well, two things. Firstly, there are people in great need. Well, the crowd represents people in great need, in desperate need. But the question is, do they know what their greatest need is? Because Jesus didn't come to heal all sicknesses. As we've been hearing the last three weeks, he came to announce the kingdom and to preach the gospel. Right? He's the one who came with the authority to forgive sins, to preach. That's the first thing, right? There are a crowd of people in great need. The second thing about the crowd we'll see is that they're a listening crowd. They hear about Jesus, and then they hear from Jesus whenever they're gathered around him. They're almost ever-present audience to Jesus' preaching ministry. But the question is, will they actually hear? Will they actually hear the word of God? And will they respond? Will they trust Jesus? Is this crowd kingdom insiders or kingdom Outsiders, right? That's the question whenever we see the crowds. Are they insiders or outsiders? Now, in the midst of all this chaotic crowds, uh, we see this calm, small gathering, don't we? Chapter 3, verse 13 to 19. In the midst of all these crowds everywhere, we get this picture, this clear and calm picture of who the insiders actually are. Now, in this seven, six, seven verses, there are actually hugely significant phrases as Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. Right, we see in verse 13 that Jesus went up on the mountain, and then we see 12 being gathered. Right? It's a clear Old Testament reference to another famous mountain, Mount Sinai, where God calls out of Egypt the 12 tribes and makes them his people, his nation. Right? A mountain, 12, you can't help but think Old Testament, where God gathers his people and sets them apart as his nation. Jesus called to himself those whom he desired, and they came. That's what we see in chapter 3, verse 13, isn't it? He called to himself those whom he willed, those whom he wanted, those whom he desired, and they came. There is a divine sovereignty at work here. Just like in in, in Sinai, where God drew his people out of Egypt. There's an irresistible grace, and an election, a choice that Jesus makes. And then we see that Jesus appointed 12. And the word appointed here actually is literally the word made. It's the same Greek word made as in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And then Jesus names the apostles just like God names and Adam names in Genesis 1. These are Genesis 1 words. You see, out of the chaos of the crowd, out of this picture of brokenness and great need, we see Jesus making a new people to belong to his kingdom. You see that? He's making a new people to belong to his kingdom, a new community who will be gathered to Jesus and then who will be sent out to bring this newness to the world, to bring this transformation into the world as they go out to preach the gospel and overcome evil. This is what they will do. Out of the chaos of the crowd, we see a group of kingdom people, insiders brought in by King Jesus. Now, as we read on, we return back to the crowds, and we see many outsiders, don't we? From this calm, clear picture of insiders, we go back into the world of the crowd, the chaos, and we see outsiders. And we see in this next passage... That there are two groups of outsiders for different reasons. Right? Jesus returns to his hometown, and notice once again in chapter 3, verse 20, right? The, the crowds are back, right? That character is back with their great needs, pressing in, listening in, crushing in on Jesus as always. And so, Jesus' family, they're there because he's in his hometown, and they think he's gone mad. Right? They literally think he's out of his mind, right? He's gone mad. They see the fanaticism of all this, they think, Jesus, my poor boy, has joined a cult right, he's been caught up in some hysteria, he, he's mad, and they tell him to come home, right, stop that nonsense, maybe that's what your parents said to you, right, being a Christian, you join a cult, now it's hard to imagine that Jesus' family haven't seen Jesus healing, it's hard to imagine that they haven't witnessed the casting out of demons, it's hard to imagine they haven't heard Jesus preach with such great authority that have wowed and amazed so many, but how have they responded? Instead of responding with faith, they think that he's mad, don't they? Their response is to want to control Jesus. They want to seize him and control him and bring him home. Now, if you notice the reading, there is a sandwich in this passage. After the one little verse here in verse 20, 21, we see again in chapter, in, in chapter 3, verse 20, 31, that the family are still there, right? And they're seeking him out to bring him home, to control him, right? It's this is sandwich. And in between we see the, this other opposition, but this is this interesting sandwich where the family's still there, still wanting to control Jesus. Now clearly and sadly, the, the family of Jesus are outsiders at this point, aren't they? You know, Mary venerated Mary, James, the apostle, Jesus' brother. At this point, they were outsiders. and they were outsiders because they thought Jesus was mad, and they wanted to control him. In a way, many people do that today, don't they? That we think Jesus is a bit too much. That we need to control Him. That that, that the Christian faith is too much. What do you mean God will judge? No. That's not the God I believe in. Right? People want to dictate who God is and who God can be and can't be. They want to determine the God that they want to believe in. They want to control God. I believe that God is love, people say. The God I believe in would never judge Never send people to hell. Come on. Don't be too fanatical about your belief in Jesus. Right? He's only one part of your life, but you've got your studies, you've got your future, your family. Don't be too fanatical as if Jesus wasn't the king of all creation and all of new creation. People would say, you know, it's crazy, isn't it? People who believe in Jesus are a bit crazy. Right? It's for people who are psychologically weak who have to believe in Jesus, implying that Jesus himself is a delusional lunatic. For he claimed that people ought to follow him in that kind of all-in way. You see, Jesus isn't a pawn that you can move around. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, this, no doubt, must be a very contra- confronting truth for you to consider. Right? You have to ask yourself, is Jesus someone that I can dismiss or I can ignore. But this is also a warning for Christians as well. Do not for a moment think that you can have a God of your own choosing. A god a God that you can control uh, from your own desires, what you want Him to be. Now Jesus, no doubt, extremely saddened to have to do so, turns his back on his family, because they're outsiders. But as we know, they do come around eventually. And, and, and there's hope for the losses, isn't there? For everyone. Now, in the middle of these two family interactions, uh, we see the religious leaders. Uh, and they are clearly outsiders as well, aren't they? Except that they are hostile opponents. They are hostile opponents. Uh, they, too, have all the evidence. Uh, they have heard the message. They have uh, seen the signs. And they choose to call Jesus bad. Right? The family think he's mad. The religious leaders think him's bad. That's what they've concluded, that Jesus is someone who's possessed and empowered by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, by Satan himself, right? Jesus is empowered by pure badness himself, is what they say. Now, Jesus responds to this in two ways. Right? Firstly, he calls out just how ridiculously illogical this is. Right? If you read on in yourself, look at the details. Basically, Jesus says, how, how can Satan drive out Satan? How can a king kill one of his own generals, right? It's absolute nonsense, no kingdom, no empire will stand with that kind of infighting, right? And we see that such hostility lives in this heart of these religious opponents that they have lost all rational sense, haven't they? Right? It makes no sense for them to come up to this conclusion that Satan is driving out Satan, right? That Jesus is casting out evil spirits by the power of the evil one himself. You know, today we, we hear atheists often accusing Christians of being irrational, Right? Atheists accuse Christians of being irrational. But perhaps it is more irrational to not believe. Perhaps it is more irrational to not believe. Certainly for the religious leaders, in the face of overwhelming evidence, their unbelief is totally irrational. We don't have to fear as Christians to be accused of being irrational and not looking at the facts. For we have. Looked at the facts. We have reasoned, and we have reason to believe, to be sure that Jesus is the Son of God that we can trust in. Now, the second thing that Jesus responds to is to give the gravest of warnings, right? Not only is it irrational, it is unforgivable, unforgivable what these religious leaders are saying. Now, this verse, chapter 3, verse 29, has been a a source of considerable stress and worry, right? You know, people read a verse like this, and they go, Oh, man! what if I commit the unforgivable sin, right? Maybe I should just give up hope now. Who who wouldn't be scared of a verse like this? Now, we have to understand this verse in context, right? We have to see firstly in verse 28, the comfort that Jesus came to forgive all sins. Don't forget verse 28. The way Jesus establishes his eternal kingdom is through the cross, where he pays for the sins of the entire world. So that whoever believes in him will have eternal life and have all of their sins forgiven. All, right? all sins of those who believe will be forgiven. That's what it says, right? Uh, all that is said out of ignorance and out of sin and out of rebellion will be forgiven. All those years of ignoring and rejecting Christ will be given, forgiven if you trust in Jesus. Now, on the other hand though, what is this one unforgivable sin? Now, if you call Jesus bad... Right? This is the problem here. Right? If you call Jesus bad, if you decide in your heart and mind that he is uh, of the devil and not of God, that you attribute his work of the Holy Spirit as the work of the evil spirit, you haven't just denied or rejected Jesus. You haven't just said no to Jesus. You have slammed the door right in his face. You haven't just ignored or rejected him for a time. You've totally maligned and cursed him. Well, this is the problem here, isn't it? It's not not about not not knowing Jesus and rejecting him. It's about maligning him to the point where you say he's of the devil. Now, this is not a sin that we easily fall into. I'm not sure when's the last time I heard any of my family or friends say that Jesus is of the devil, right? It's not something that if you're ever worried of committing the unforgivable sin that you would ever say uh, yourself. So I think you don't have to worry about it uh, too much. If you've uh, never done something like this, say that Jesus is on the devil, right? It's not a sin you're likely to commit. But we see here that the religious leaders have, right? And they're clearly outsiders. And it's quite interesting, isn't it? Family, religious leaders, family, it's almost like they're all in the same boat. Whether you're just trying to control Jesus or whether you're hostile towards Jesus and hating on him, you're both part of this group called the outsiders, Which is really strange, isn't it? For the the family of Jesus and the religious leaders brought up in the Jewish faith, they, they should have been the insiders. They had the greatest excess. Why is it that they couldn't see? And the reason is because they couldn't hear. They couldn't hear, isn't it? There's a beautiful scene right at the end of chapter 3 in verse 33 to 35 that shows us a picture of what an insider looks like. Now, as Jesus' family seeks out to, uh, to control Jesus, we see this crowd sitting around Jesus, right? Uh, it's a bit more like that uh, uh, children's Bible kind of scene, right? It seems a bit more calm, this chapter 3, verse 33. And, and as he's there, rejecting his earthly family, he reveals his spiritual and his eternal family. In verse 34, Jesus says this, right here, here, sitting around me, are my brothers and my mother. For whoever does the will of God... He is my brother and sister and mother. We see this picture that it is those who come to Jesus to listen and to respond with faith and obedience that are a true family of Jesus, the insiders of Jesus' kingdom. Now, if you didn't have chapter 4, verse 1 as a break there, and you just kept reading on, it beautifully sigs into the next section, isn't it? We see that this small crowd expands to a larger crowd where he begins to teach about listening. Because this is the principal factor of determining whether you're inside or outside, whether you listen and how you listen and how you respond. Chapter 4 is a super famous chapter that almost all of you have heard. Whether you've grown up in a Christian family, uh, I'm sure you've heard about this four soils kind of picture. And it's so familiar that it's easy to dismiss, isn't it? Uh, To close our ears now is to do precisely the opposite of what this parable is trying to do, right? So don't close your ears to this very famous parable. It's a parable about listening and responding to God's word. It's a picture that describes all of the reactions to Jesus up to this point in the Gospel of Mark and from here on in to the very end. It's a picture describing the crowds, the religious leaders, the families, the disciples. This parable describes what's happening right now. Right, this is telling us what's happening right now in your very mind and heart, right at this moment and throughout this morning. It's happening whenever you open the Bible and read it for yourself or listen to it right, on, on an app on your phone. It's happening whenever you meet up with someone one-on-one or go to a Bible study. It's happening whenever you listen to a Christian song that sings Christian truths or read a Christian book written about the Word of God. This parable happens all the time. The issue is which of these four listenings and respondings are you? Which of these four are you? So the question is, are you ready to hear? All right? you want to stretch yourself a little bit? If you're asleep right at the point, now's the time to wake up, all right? Because this first one, I don't want it to be you, right? Because if you're sleeping, or you're looking at your phone, or your brain is off somewhere else, this is happening to you right now. The first listening, this first response is the seed on a path, right, devoured by the birds. The seed on a path, devoured by the birds. The word has no more effect on people like this than water on stone, than water on stone. They hear and get nothing, absolutely nothing. You kind of wonder, how can this be possible? How can people hear and get nothing? Well, it's possible, isn't it? If you're a kid, you know, you hear your parents speak to you all the time, and you get Nothing. Right? Husbands. Come to grunt, right? You'll, you'll help to learn to not do that, right? You know, a selective hearing. It's just water on stone. Faith will tell me something. I see her lips moving. And I'll be like... And afterwards, I'll, I'll be like, Sorry, what did you say? At least I ask, right? At least I ask. More seriously, there'll be two of you sitting here in the sermon. Two of you sitting here in the sermon. One of you, at the end of the sermon, will share about the things that you've been impacted by, by God's word, you've got the main point, you've got the purpose, and you want to apply it. The person beside you will act like they heard, they will nod, and they'll have nothing to add. They'll say, oh, yeah, I've heard it already. Uh, nothing to share. Let's just pray. Right? Completely different. One, you know, listening, taking it in. water on stone. No, I get to speak to so many of you uh, as a pastor, it's one of the privileges, right, to hear so many stories. And uh, in, in, 20, in, in, in ministry, especially among the students, right, I get to hear a lot of their stories in the more detail. And, and a lot of them are 20, 21, 22-year-olds, and a lot of them grew up in Christian homes. And they were listening to sermons ever since they were in the tummy, right, of their, their mum, And then they've listened, a 20-year-old, maybe about 1,000, right? If you think about 52 weeks a year, and let's say we skip church maybe five weeks, eight weeks a year, still roughly about a thousand sermons or Sunday school classes, more if they attended youth group, right? A thousand sermons or Sunday school lessons. But sadly, I've heard so many testimonies of people who say, all those years, I never understood the gospel. You hear those testimonies? I never understood the gospel. And they're what, 20, 21, 22 year olds who've grown up in church? Water of stone, not just once, not just twice, but for years and for decades. We're kind of amazed that that could happen, but it happens, doesn't it? Response number two the seed on rocky ground, on shallow soil. The picture here is of a cut flower, right? A cut flower. Beautiful signs of life, but really, they're dead, aren't they? Beautiful signs of life, but they're dead. Let me read a quote from J.C. Rao, a bishop from the uh, 19th century, describing people like this. These are they on whom preaching produces temporary impressions, but no deep, lasting, and abiding effect. They take pleasure in hearing sermons in which the truth is faithfully set forth. They can speak with apparent joy and enthusiasm about the sweetness of the gospel and the happiness which they experience in listening to it. They can be moved to tears by the appeals of preachers and talk with apparent earnestness of their own inward conflicts and hopes and struggles, desires and fears. But, but, unhappily, there is no stability about their religion." There is no grounding. There is no roots. Like cut flowers, there is no real life. And like cut flowers, what do they do? They die after a short time, don't they? Jesus explains this in chapter 4, verse 17, doesn't he? He says there's no roots. The, the, The word never bedded in. It didn't go deep. And so it couldn't survive. You know, maybe... It's of us, we hear the word once, twice, maybe a hundred times, and then we stop listening. Maybe it was only ever head knowledge. You hear people say that? I've always been about head knowledge. I knew the gospel. I knew God's word in my head. But it never seeped into the convictions of the heart to make any real difference. And so when it isn't easy anymore to become a Christian, when you start getting teased at school, when it's no longer convenient or or comfortable to put Jesus first or to proclaim him, when it starts costing too much, relationally, financially, and then we give in because there are no roots. Now, sadly, we know people like this, don't we? I've been a Christian for uh, quite a lot of time, long time, and one of the things that that happens when you're a Christian a long time going out through a youth group is you get a lot of photos. That's what Christians do. We take photos and we take group photos, right? Like this. Let me pull up the photo. After the lag, you overcome. Okay, so you can't really see this, but there's some really cool people here. This is, uh, this thing doesn't work on the screen. This is Steve. <laughs> All right, when he got baptized. What, was, what year was that, Steve? 2002. 2002, wow, 17 years ago. That's Andrew Young. Right here, it's my parents there. And then that's uh, Aaron Teo sitting on Amanda's lap. Look at him with his butt no teeth. Okay, like, you have photos like this, right? You, you, I mean, I was looking through these photos, and, and I was smiling, and I was rem- reminiscing, but I, I was also grieving. Because in a photo like this, I see cut flowers. I see people who were excited. This was an awesome camp. Pete Cole spoke, right? Awesome preacher from Sydney, and this camp was awesome. But I see cut flowers. People who were excited then, but I know today are no longer walking with the Lord. Now, don't look at my old photos, right? Forget the photo. Right? You bring your old photo out of when you were younger, in Sunday school or youth group or wherever, and you look at the photo, and you think, are these people still walking with the Lord? Or have they departed from the faith? Because there were really never any any roots. It's a bit discouraging, isn't it, sometimes? you would be despair. How could this happen? Maybe there is a comfort in knowing that Jesus knows. And he prepares us to face this reality. For Jesus himself, the king of the kingdom, received this kind of response of crowds who followed him for a while. And then when it got hard, they shrank back and fell away. Now, the third response are the seeds among the thorns, the seeds among the thorns, they're very much like the previous hearers, except these people go deeper. The problem isn't underground, the problem is above ground, right? It's the, the, the temptations, the lures of the world that tempts the desires within, right? It's the world out there tempting the desires within. Verse 18 and 19, Jesus explains it. They are those who hear the word about the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. This group are choked out. They're water and stone, cut flower, and here we see choked out. People who are choked out. Rendered totally unproductive, not fruitful in any way in their Christian walk. They're the kind of Christians who frustrate mature Christians. You know? They're the kind of Christians who frustrates pastors and Bible study leaders and mentors you know those kind of Christians? Let I me mean, let like J.C. Ryle again. I mean, I, love, I, I don't know. J.C. Ryle just nails it, right? If you want to read this entire commentary, uh, I'll, I'll send it to you. It's not that long, but this is another bit of gold that he could say better than I can. So I want to read it out to you, okay? These people, they acknowledge the head, even Christ, and love the truth. Uh, they like sound preaching and are sent to every article of gospel doctrine when they hear it. But still, there is an indescribable something which is not satisfactory about them. They are constantly doing things which disappoint the expectations of their ministers and of more advanced Christian friends. Marvelous that they should think as they do and yet stand still. That's sarcasm, by the way, right? That they should think as they do and yet stand still. They believe in heaven and yet seem faintly to long for it, and in hell yet seem little to fear it. They love the Lord Jesus, but the work they do for him is small. They hate the devil, but they often appear to tempt him to come to them. They know the time is short, but they live as if it were long. They know they have a battle to fight, yet a man might think they were at peace. They know they have a race to run, yet they often look like people sitting still. They know the judge is at the door, and there is wrath to come, and yet they appear half asleep. Astonishingly, astonishing that they should be what they are and yet be nothing more. Astonishing that they should be what they are and nothing more. Isn't it frighteningly disturbing how that describes so many of us? I know this because I've spoken to some of you where we share these burdens of being like this plant, right? Where we know so much uh, we even love some... I see some of you cry sometimes when you sing songs. I spoke to one sister last night. She was saying that, right? She used to be so affected by the things that she was singing. And then by Monday morning when she got up, she just felt dry and cold and distant from Jesus again, right? That, that, this, this, it's like twin personality or something. And it is described, it's described by this response of, of being choked out by the cares and the loves of this world. It's hard to know, isn't it, what to say about this group of hearers. Some people want to say that, well, at least they seem to be believers. These these plants, they haven't died, so they're safe, right? It's just that they're fruitless. But is that what we want to settle on? Is that really what we want to settle on? Would the true family of the king settle for this kind of response? Would the true family of of the king want to be this kind of unproductive, worthless servant? Thankfully, Jesus finishes the parable with the fourth and final picture. This beautiful picture of the seed on fertile soil. Now clearly this picture is of the genuine, wholehearted believer who has heard and responded. And they keep hearing and they keep responding. There's an interesting kind of grammatical thing here. In the first three groups, they hear. The word there seems to be a more of a once-off hearing, a limited hearing. But this fourth group, the hearing here is a continuous tense. They hear and they keep on hearing. They, they produce fruit. And they draw nearer and nearer to Christ. They keep responding. they transformed in purpose and behavior. They're the ones who engage in the king's mission wholeheartedly. Right? They're a picture of the disciples, in a sense. Right? They're they, they messed up. right? They, they stumbled and fell many times, but they kept listening, and they kept responding. And then they kept bearing fruit, except for Judas, who stopped listening and stopped bearing fruit. So the question is, I guess does this last seed, this last hero, uh, does it describe you? Does it describe me? Does this describe many of us? I really hope so, right? Because to, to struggle is not to be any of the other three souls. It's it's, it's a matter of whether we, we are faithful to keep listening, and then whether we're being fruitful. Right? We're not. We, it's not about perfection. The fourth soul isn't about perfection. It's about faithfulness and fruitfulness. It's about following Jesus. I think we know this is possible because we see others doing it, right? We are in a community where I'm certain that there are examples of this for soil that we can emulate. And maybe you are one of those people and you will draw comfort from reading this part of God's word. Now let me bring things together, okay? Let me wrap things up by very quickly running through these last four parables from chapter 4, verse 21 to 34. I'm not really going to touch on any detail of them because there's no time. I want to draw out three truths Okay, that are a perfect way to finish up this sermon uh, from these four parables. Okay, The first one is drawn from the first parable. The first two are really about us. And the last two are all about God. Okay, You see the first two are about us? The last two are about God. The first two parables put the responsibility of listening and responding on us. The responsibility is on us, right? The Word of God is the light that is not to be put under a cover. It is to be heard. That's what the lights are. It's meant to be seen. That's what I'm saying here, right? God's Word is a Word of life, a Word of light. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is the eternal wisdom and plan of God that we're to keep listening to, grow in our understanding of, and live out, and then listen some more, and then respond. Listen and keep Responding. Can you see in this passage how many times Jesus says this? Chapter 4, verse 3, listen. He commands, listen. Chapter 4, verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Chapter 4, verse 23, 24, listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, it's not possible to determine which of these four soils we are. Well, it's not possible to determine which of of us are fertile soils uh, in, in a limited space of time. You and I can't tell just from one sermon, from just one quiet time, or even from a year's worth or ten years' worth. How do you know you're the fourth soil, the fertile soil? You'll know when you get to the end of your life and you have heard and you kept hearing and kept responding. So let's listen and respond right to the very end. Whether you're 13 or 70-plus, Let's listen to the very end. Don't let anything stop you from listening. Don't ever think you've read enough or heard enough of the Bible of God's Word in your life. Humble yourself and submit to God's Word always. It's also our responsibility, secondly, to listen with the greatest measure. Right, this is the second parable there, to listen with the greatest measure. We have to put aside the time And invest the energy into our learning. We have to pay attention, close attention. We have to work hard. It is not easy listening to me for 35 to 40, okay, sometimes 45 minutes. You guys do pretty well, right? I preach longer than most people, right? It's hard work to listen. If I were not preaching, I would be struggling to stay asleep, uh, to stay awake, okay? Let me just let you know. Uh, I slept through one-fifth of my degree. I should get a refund, right? <laughs> I suck at listening to lectures and sermons. Maybe some of you feel that same way, but you've got to work hard. When you open that Bible for quiet time, rub that sleep off your eyes, right? Don't start reading your Bible at midnight when you're falling asleep. Read it in the morning or whenever you're freshest. Put the effort in with great measure to listen and read and study and meditate and apply the Word of God. Don't let it sit in your mind. Don't be that shallow soil. Let it go deep in your convictions. Now, maybe not every single time you open the Bible that you're going to be like exploding with conviction, but don't let it go by more than a few days or a few weeks where it's always just in the head. It's always just superficial. What's the point? Let it go deep. Now, I hope it doesn't sound like too much hard work for you. I hope it doesn't sound like too much hard work. I know you're putting hard work. You're Asians, most of you, right? You put in hard work to get your A's, to get into QA's, to get into UQ's, to get into wherever it is that you do. You put your hard work in to play your your violin and your piano and and to to become the best in, in, in soccer or rugby, to excel in your workplace. We put in the hard work all the time. It's a poor excuse to say that we're not willing to put in the hard work to listen to the Word of God. To the words of eternal life the only question is whether jesus christ and his eternal kingdom is worth the effort is he worth the effort now the final point today i want to draw attention away from us into god yes we are responsible but we would be amiss to miss how much god and how much jesus is responsible for our growth how much we depend on his mercy and grace God is sovereign. He is the one who causes the growth. And the growth that God intends to bring is massive. That's what these last two parables are, right? A seed that gets planted, it grows up, and no one knows why. How did it happen? This this mustard seed that grows into the biggest tree that dominates everything, God is doing all that. He's causing the growth, and that growth is going to be massive. It already is massive since the gospel was first preached. You see, Jesus came to make new people. He's making new people today. A new community that will go out into the world to bring about the great fruit of transformation. This is a great comfort that this passage brings, that God is doing the work. But it also is confronting, for God is also sovereignly blinding and closing the hearts of those who reject Him. There is this passage I didn't touch on in the middle of this parable, in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, where Jesus quotes from the Old Testament Isaiah, where he says that I preach in parables to close people's eyes. Why does he say that? Because the context of Isaiah is that people have rejected God. And God's judgment is to sovereignly harden hearts. You don't want to hear? Fine. I'm going to harden your hearts. We see this with the crowds who followed and turned away we see this especially with the religious leaders who already had such hard hearts, so much hostility so much irrationality that Jesus' words only made them worse, didn't it? just as it is in God's power to give growth it's also in his power to restrict it and that he will do to those who refuse to hear that's confronting isn't it? that's scary God's word today is scary, it's confronting, but it's also comforting. And it all depends on how we will hear, and how we will go on hearing. As Jesus says, let him or or her who has ears to hear, let him or her hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word, as you promise, is like a sword that cuts right to our hearts. And we pray so very much that your spirit has wielded his sword and has pierced our hearts with your words today. That you will not allow us to just be water on stone and not have heard a thing. That you will not allow us just to have rocky soil kind of responses where we're excited for a moment and then forget. There will not be those who walk out into the world later on this morning into the week and be choked out by the cares and the loves of this world, but instead that your Holy Spirit is preparing and has prepared a fertile soil for us to hear and to keep hearing and to keep responding to your word. There is so much within us that prevents us from listening. We pray that you'll supernaturally, powerfully do a miraculous work of allowing us to see and hear spiritual truths and to be transformed. For this we pray in Jesus' most precious name.